17th chapter. Okay, there's, uh, we'll read it, I'm debating, I think we'll read it in sections rather than read the whole thing because there's several different things uh, under consideration. But there's a couple of concepts that's uh, important because of uh, various reasons and different teachings on it, and that's this uh, uh, part with sin and your brother in the first part, and then also uh, beginning with verse uh, 22 when he starts to talk about the coming of the Son of Man, uh, that section becomes important because of looking at what he's saying there and then taking that and putting it in the context in, in other places. So those are two areas that's, that is important. Also, another thing you can note uh, going through here and into the 18th chapter is, is how many times the subject comes up concerning the kingdom. This was, was a big thing with them, and it comes up over and over as they ask him questions, and he has the problem of tr trying to convey to them what the kingdom really is. Everybody, I mean, there was no, no question that it was time for it and it was going to come and it's going to be set up. But they had a tremendous misunderstanding of it. And I think the way Jesus handled this can be important that he didn't, uh, uh, you don't find him just saying to them, your, mis miscon your, your idea of the kingdom is absolutely wrong. Here's the way it is. But he would say the kingdom is like such and such, and he would teach something on some part of it. And then another time he would teach something on another part. And so as they asked specific questions that showed a particular misunderstanding, he would answer and correct it uh, in that area. And this really, it's, it's interesting, the, the way that most of his teaching is done is not through a prepared sermon so much as, it, as far as what we have. I'm sure he had his prepared sermons. But most of it is uh, answering questions. I mean, if you think about something like marriage and divorce, for example, they specifically ask him a question on that, and he answered it. And even when it gets to the, uh, the judgment situation that we'll talk about, um, he made a statement. They asked him a question. They said, uh, when, when is this going to happen? What will be the signs that it's going to take place? And everything we have is in response to their question. So he... Uh, seemingly handles his disciples really similar to the way that we handle a child. When a child's coming up, that we, we teach children uh, in keeping with the questions that they ask, and that seemed to be the way that he handled them on prayer and the kingdom or divorce and remarriage, uh, the resurrection, any number of areas that it was, it was in answer to the various questions that they had. Okay, let's start here in this uh, 17th chapter and uh, read through, let's see, Mark, start with you, and let's just uh, uh, read through the uh, fourth verse. <coughs> okay. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. 
Okay, and those, uh, the first part, uh, that's a pretty strong statement that uh, uh, concerning any, somebody that would actually entice another person to sin. I mean, when he makes a statement, woe to that person who, through whom they come, and it's better for him to be thrown into the sea in a millstone uh, tied around his neck than him to cause one of the little ones to sin. Notice uh, the speech that's uh, used here again, the hyperbole, that uh, there was probably no method of speech that Jesus employed more often, along with you know the parables, was, was the hyperbole, and that is this gross exaggeration to get a point off across, but he's definitely stating there that it is a very serious thing for an individual to do something that would entice or, or be the reason that somebody else sins. All right, now, the part I'd like to spend a little time on, Jack and Louise, everybody here except Steve and Mark was at uh, Jubilee, and it came up in about, I, don't, I think I can think of three different talks where I heard the subject of forgiveness and that uh, when people sin, that you don't wait on them to repent, you go ahead and forgive them, no matter what. It was just there that you forgave them. And, uh, and then it, to do anything else was, was wrong. And it was three different times I remember this. One in particular, one person who spent a lot of time on it was Joe Beam. Uh, and then Rubel Shelley, he spent some time on it. And then one of the keynote speakers, the same thing, of uh, uh, that when sin takes place, that you go ahead and you forgive them no matter what. A number of Christians uh, believe that whether they do it or not, that, that uh, to be faithful to God involves forgiving people that sin, whether or not, no matter what their, their feelings or anything like that, that you go ahead and, and forgive them. I differ with that, and I want to look at that. I think that part of it maybe is a misunderstanding of, of love and that is the belief that uh, if you don't forgive somebody, that means you don't love them. And I believe that uh, we can show that, uh, uh, that, that forgiveness and love are two separate things. I mean, if you love, you will forgive. There is a sense in which you will. But to not forgive doesn't mean that you do not love. So notice the context here. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Okay. That's in perfect harmony with, uh, <clears throat> remember in Matthew uh, 18, Jesus made the statement, if somebody sins against you, they go to him privately and try to get the matter handled. And then uh, if that doesn't work, take two or three, try to handle the matter. If that doesn't work, then he says, bring it before the church and let him be as a pagan to you, that you, don't, that you actually uh, break the relationship uh, with that person. But first of all, we see that if somebody sins against you, and this is the first part of this, this business of silent suffering and uh, not, uh, not telling a person that they have wronged you and sinned against you and expecting them to repent, that really is uh, not God's approach to life. Uh, uh, and I would say a lot of people have the attitude, if somebody sins against me, that, that maybe I just say nothing and I go ahead and uh, forgive him. Or if I do say something, whether he repents or not, I forgive him. But here, first of all, he said, if he sins, rebuke him. Okay. 
And if he repents, forgive him. Okay? If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Okay. Any comments or observations on that? What are your feelings? Or can you think of any other examples in the Bible or passages that you would use to throw light on that? Either way. What, what, what is the definition of sins against you? Well, to sin is to break God's law. Right. Sin is a transgression of the law. First John 3 and 4. Yeah, we've missed the mark when we do that. So when somebody sins against me, my understanding is that he has done something that's contrary to God's law. He's either taken something from me or he's lied about me or he's done something wrong in some slandered or whatever. But in some way, that person has wronged you. So they, they've sinned against you. The first first part just says if your brother sins, mm -hmm. rebuke him. And then the next part, if, um, if he sins against you, mm -hmm. well, actually, there would be passages that if he sins and it's not against you, and it's some kind of a. Uh, remember in First Corinthians five, the guy there was living with uh, one of his father's uh, wives, and. Paul got on them and said, you, you've been haughty about this and popped up. In other words, they hadn't said anything about it. They just tolerated it. And he made it clear that they you know, should have said something about it. Well, what, when, you, when you say uh, you forgive someone, then, okay, like I'll give you, exa I'll give you an example. Let's say... Uh, Someone borrows a thousand dollars from you, and you, and, you uh, and he doesn't. He doesn't. He's gonna pay you back, and he doesn't pay you back. Okay. All right. Then a year later, he comes and says, um, he says, you know, I'm sorry I didn't pay you back. You know, will you forgive me? You say I forgive you. And then he says. Okay, can I borrow another thousand dollars? Well, wait a minute. Has he? Let's uh, look at that. Uh, uh, when he asked, has he? Let's see what he's done now. From a repentance standpoint, looking at the law, what does the law say? If, if I have uh, taken something of yours and I say I've repented, what was the teaching in the law? What should I what should I do? Right. Remember Zacchaeus says that if I have uh, in fact how much more uh, the nineteenth chapter uh, Zacchaeus uh, Here and now I give half my possessions to feed the poor. If I have cheated anybody I will pay back four times the amount. Okay, now the law of Moses actually demanded. And in fact, whether you paid four times the amount or double the amount, or sometimes even five, depending on what you had taken. But it, it involved restitution of paying it back. If a thief was caught, he had to restore whatever he'd take plus some now, to is the... Is that stealing or is that borrowing money? Or... Well, I don't know. The, if somebody... 
ask money, first of all, if they borrow money and then they honestly cannot pay it back and they try to make arrangements with you and something like that, that's one thing. But you're talking about somebody that borrows money, makes no effort to pay you back. They could pay you back and they don't. I don't see the difference there between that and stealing myself. I, I really don't. And then the question is uh, forgiving that person. Can you not forgive him and still love him? Yeah, I think. Okay. See, I think that's where the. I think there's some. Like, I think when most people say you're not. You forgive them, I think they're thinking the person who doesn't forgive is holding a grudge and. Right. Having wrong type, feelings. Right. And that's not and that's necessarily why they say so. you need to forgive. And, right. Because they're saying that. You've got these hostile feelings toward this person right. that aren't. And what that's would, not um, so, forgive, uh, to forgive what, just means to release someone. Because I right. always believe the same thing that you, you know, forgive them, you know, in the sense that, you know, you don't hold a grudge. And, okay, what is our ultimate goal is God likeness, right? Which exemplifies in Christ. And so, like God is what we want. Now the question becomes, uh, Number one, does God love every single solitary person in the world? Yes. He does. All right. Does God forgive people when they sin if they do not repent? Okay. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But again, people would have to repent and they'd have to put their trust in him, uh, even though he loves and you have the situation of uh, Paul telling the church at Corinth that they should uh, withdraw their fellowship from that man that was living that way with the idea of causing him to see how serious. In other words, Paul's thinking was that he needed to be motivated to see how serious this sin was and that you don't want to leave the impression that what he's doing is okay and so you want him to repent for his good. So it, this, let's get back to the guy that borrowed $100 or 1000 from you and then did not pay it back. He sinned. The question is, will God forgive him if he doesn't repent? And then the next question is, does God expect you to do something he won't do? Are we and, better than God that we right, would forgive? Are we, God right, are, are we more loving and kind than, than God? And then the next is, if you're willing to forgive somebody who refuses to repent, are you actually putting them in a situation where they would be less likely to repent when they really need to repent before God. What about Stephen? He was down. He said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Okay. Jesus did the same thing on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. Okay. They killed Jesus. When did the Father forgive them? Okay. On the know what they done was wrong. Okay, he said that, that he made it clear that they did this in it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So they were doing it in ignorance. But then on the day of Pentecost, the apostles stood up and explained to them what they had done, proved to them they were wrong, and then they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, repent, you know, and then be baptized in the name of Christ. So I'm saying that so although Jesus said God. that, God didn't forgive them until they repented. And I think the same thing with Stephen. Paul held the garments while they stoned Stephen to death. 
But in the Old Testament, he forgave them for sins that they didn't know of or unintentional sins. Yeah. I yeah, think but you get back different. to the heart. But We're you get back to the heart, that. don't you no. think? And like even that, forgive them for you they know not what they do. You said they didn't forgive him until until they repented. Came to know that they had actually committed a sin. Yeah. Well, but I'm saying so like... Jerry, that's to get back to, I think, uh, our responsibility. It says here to rebuke him, let him know. Obviously, I can never expect anybody to repent if they are not aware of the fact that they have wronged me. Right. And I don't think um, God would in any way expect uh, expect uh, somebody to repent of something they're not aware of being wrong. And that's where I think God does forgive us for those things. That There are things, I'm sure, that we all do wrong that we don't repent of simply because we're not aware that we're doing wrong. And Jesus' blood covers us of those things. It's only when we're made aware uh, so the key is that if somebody has wronged me, that I should make them aware of that. Yeah. Then at that point, it's in their court. And when you come to the law, though, I mean, I don't. The, can anybody steal from somebody else, or lie about them, or commit adultery, or cheat, or something like that, and not be aware of you know what they're doing and those things? I'm seeing that the the type of things that people were ignorant of under the old law had to do with things relative to their worship or something of that nature, you know, where they may do something in ignorance, but you don't have a situation, uh, even though that's spelled out plainly uh, in the old law, you don't have a situation where somebody commits adultery or lies or steals or cheats or murders and is ignorant of it. You know, it, it was always uh, some particular thing dealing with their, you know, their law itself. The, you know, the various requirements of the law of Moses and their sacrificial system and and things like that. I think too, maybe some of the thinking comes from even the Lord's Prayer that that we quoted all of our lives, forgive uh, us as we forgive those who trespassed against right. us. So. But when we ask God to forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us, does God forgive us if we refuse to repent? It doesn't. That, in other words, to the best of our knowledge and under, understanding. And what God does is he lets us know that we've sinned. You know, through the prophets and the, the apostles and all, he lets us know that we have sinned, and then he expects, uh, he expects uh, accountability there. Maybe a good passage is where Jesus said that, if I had not come and spoken to you, you would not have any sin. But now you have no excuse for your sin that once God let them know, then there was no excuse. You know? But uh, if they were ignorant, he said, you have a cloak. It was still sin, but they have an excuse. And I don't have any, uh, I think any of us realize that there may be times when somebody would offend you or you offend somebody and not realize you've done it, you know, on certain type things. I mean, you might hurt somebody's feelings by just a tone of voice and not realize you've done it. You know, I know I've had Barbara tell me uh, a number of times that, uh, you know, that what you said was okay, but your tone of voice wasn't the best, you know. That, and, that, and I think, you know, she's right on that. You can actually say something uh, in a wrong tone of voice and, and hurt another person's feelings. But you may not think about it, and then somebody pointed out to you, and you realize, well, I did, and you can go ahead and, you know, straighten that matter out. But have you actually sinned against that person in that situation? Well, when I think when you become aware of it, 
and you know that you did it, and that's their perception, I think that's where your conscience uh, comes in. You know, that. Uh, it might be them as much as it is you. I guess is what yeah. I'm saying. Sure, you know, it's interesting, sensitive though. Sensitive to that type. Right. But you know, it's interesting. Uh, I ran into this in a, that Principal's Academy I went to, a whole section on communications. And it said that when you spoke, there was the tone of voice, and then there was the, the body language, and there was the words. And it said the words, and they had nobody guessed it right, that about 7 or 8% of your, your, your communication was taking place through the words. And better than 90% was taking place through the tone of voice and the body language. Mm-hmm. And it said anytime there was a contradiction between the tone of voice and the words, people will always buy into the tone of voice. In other words, if, uh, if I said, okay, I forgive you. You don't believe, I said the right words, but you don't believe it. You, you have bought into the tone of voice. And it says, um, that's why it said you've got to be so careful when you're trying to evaluate, when a person is relating what they said to another person or something like that. They may be telling the exact truth, but when they're relating it to you, they may be given a completely different tone of voice. It's just like um, Louise can relate to me with this. Uh, I've got a couple of teachers that are real high strung, and if a kid does something, they'll just get right in there and nail them. I mean, right before everybody. And you do that with a 13, 14, 15-year-old boy, and you're, you're begging for problems. And so this one lady I'm thinking about, that, and she knows who I'm talking about, and I think, she will nail somebody just real sharp, you know, for some little thing they've done. But they'll come right back at her, you see. And they talk back to her, and they're rude to her, and all. And then she grabs, she comes to me, and she wants me to weld the dickens out of them, okay? <laughs> but what she does, she tells me how they talk back to her, and she tells me what they did. And she has just corrected them, you know. But when she's relating it to me, she won't use the same tone of voice as she had to those kids. And, and so I'm saying that there it is, I'm getting the words that were said, but I'm missing half of it because, well, then I'll talk to the kid, you know, and the kid will tell me, yeah, but you should have heard the way she said that, Mr. Cook, you know, that, uh, and they, but I mean, that is it. But I'm saying that I can see how that we do, you know, without realizing it, uh, you know, and I think that when we do find out, then it's good to go ahead, you know, and try to straighten it out. But the, the concept here is that if somebody sins you have to, against you, you have a responsibility to let them know. And then, then if they really did sin against you and they're convinced again, they have a responsibility to repent. And then you forgive them when they repent. You love them even if they don't repent. Like he said, uh, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. Uh, if he needs something to drink, give him something to drink. And so I think that this person has sinned against you, and he doesn't hasn't repented. We're still not going to watch him starve. We would help him out. You know, we'd give him something to drink. Mark we'd give him something to eat. I think that is the problem. I think that people think of when you don't forgive people, you kind of won't speak to them, and you, no. that kind of What's thing. What's the difference in your your attitude and your treatment of that person before you forgive them and after you forgive them? Well, to forgive literally means to release. They no longer owe you that. I think that uh, even when you withdraw fellowship, Paul said to do it, you know, as a brother, 
Um, he said, when you go to somebody, go in, in a spirit of gentleness, consider yourself lest you also be tempted. I believe that you just simply don't associate with that individual in any way that would condone the behavior. But I believe you're polite and courteous, you know, to that person. You're, but you're not going to you're not going to conduct yourself in such a way that you just uh, leave the impression that there is nothing there. But yet you're courteous to that individual uh, when you when when you have contact with them. Let me give you one more example. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll let you go on the Our family had a reunion about a week ago, and there was a there was a one of our relatives by marriage. He he came, and we were going to go. The family was going to go out to the Crossside Cricket, and he said, "No, this guy's a, an Italian." He said, "No, I, I want to cook Italian for everybody." He said, so why don't, you know, can we meet at your house and and uh, I'll buy the food and I'll cook, you know, I'll cook Italian and uh, that way, you know, we can all be at your home and associate and everything. And I said, that's fine, you know. And so they start going to the store and he says, I decided I'll let you pay for it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't believe it. It was his idea. Yeah. To do it. And he started going, so then he says, I decided I'll let you yeah, pay for it. he said, I'm going to let you pay for it. And then he said, he said, when people come, he said, I'll pass around a hat and get your money back. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. said, I don't want to. You know, that's okay. So, but anyway, so mom spends a hundred and something dollars mm. to feed you know, all these people and everything. And she didn't get all her money back and everything. Mm. But Wow. <laughs> all right, I think uh, on that thing, Mark, this, what your mom did, is probably what most of us do, and I'm not sure that that's part of the problem. I don't think you should let another person dominate your thinking. If, if, if somebody says something that's a little off and they're kind of taking advantage of the situation, I believe really you ought to call their hand right there. And I believe it's difficult to do, but all right, let's get back into this and uh, get and deal with that on that. It says, if he sins against you, rebuke him. What happens when somebody sins against you, just like that thing with your mom? That that was a, it was a, a, you know, a thing where you just couldn't pick out one of the laws, but we heard that and we all agreed that that, that was wrong. Okay, what happens when somebody sins against you, they wrong you in some way, and you don't say anything to them? What happens then to your, your feelings about that person? If they wrong you in some way? You start um, to resent. You hope they don't come back very often. <laughs> well, let me, let's see. Hold your place there. Flip over here to Leviticus. I believe this, uh, Leviticus 19. I believe I'm accurate on this one. Okay, Leviticus 19 and uh, verse, uh, okay. Look at verse 17, Leviticus 19, verse 17. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in his guilt. Okay? Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice how that all goes together. Don't hate him in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so that you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? What he's saying there is that if somebody sins against you and you just don't say anything, you take it, you can wind up hating that person if you don't watch it. In other words, if it happens, for example, uh, oh, maybe one time you can just throw it out and you think, well, I'm not going to be around this guy for another five years or something like that. But I think if somebody does something against you several times and then you don't do anything, you don't say anything, I think then you've got a real battle with yourself because you can begin to hate that individual. And I think that uh, people who do degenerate in their thinking to the point of hating another person, I believe it's when they have taken wrong from another person sometimes and have not said it. And, and sometimes this happens in a, in a relationship. You know, that uh, when you read some of these things of marriage counselors, that sometimes you have one that has been a silent sufferer for a number of years. And they don't talk back or say anything back, they just take it. But then they wind up hating the other person. It's far better to talk back. In other words, if you and your wife have a difference, uh, the counselor would tell you it's far better to go ahead and, and argue about it and each one of you get your feelings out because if you hold it and you don't say anything and you just let the other person wrong you, you can wind up hating that person, you know. And, and so I think that, that it's important that when somebody wrongs you that you let them know. You know, now if they don't repent, at least you've let them know. And, and that's it. Then they, but they have a responsibility there. If they don't repent, you still love them. Uh, you're you're going to treat them in a courteous way and all, but you're not going to release them from that. And, and this guy that has, uh, in, for example, in the church that, that has uh, committed adultery, or lady, whichever it would be, you're not going to just say, hey, forget about it, that's in the past, and come on and, and let's fellowship again. They're going to have to repent. You know of that, and you're not doing them any favor if, if if you don't. And the same with any other matter, you know, whatever it might be. We had a thing. You mentioned that thing on a thousand. Barbara and I had a situation uh, years back when we was in Georgia. This guy was a young married guy. His dad was an elder in the church in a close a city about 40 miles away, and he came to live there in the city. And he just, he had a job. His wife, I think, had, had a job to her, but they were just newly married. So he went to borrow some money to get some furniture. But he couldn't borrow money because he didn't have any credit established. And back then, by the way, you couldn't borrow as easy as you can now. And so anyway, I went to the bank and signed on the note so he could uh, borrow money to get furniture. And he got, I, I don't even remember the amount of money now, but he got, he got some furniture for his house. The bank man actually tried to persuade me not to do it, you know, because and he was he was I was preaching for the church. He was leading their singing. He was leading the singing. I was the preacher in the church, and he was a young married couple. And so he borrowed the money. I signed on the note, and he up and left town. Um, a few months after that, didn't say one word to me or anybody in the congregation. Just well, left. It was late. The two or three months he was there, he's always late with his payment, right. and. I'd have to make it. Yeah. I'd have to make the payment. We, didn't, we made it a couple of times, and then finally we paid it off. Yeah, we made the payment a couple of times, and then he just moved off, and so I paid off the entire, nothing I could do about it. I signed, I paid the debt. Well, to this day, uh, he's, never, he's never made arrangements. He's never said anything to me. He knows exactly what he did. 
Well, I don't walk around hating that guy or anything like that. I, you know that God has blessed me, and I'm not a poverty case or anything like that. And but, and if he was starving, uh, I wouldn't want to see him starve to death, and I wouldn't want to see him tortured, and I'd like to see him repent and all. But by the same token, if I was to see him, I wouldn't recognize him today. But if I was to see him and find out who he was, I still I wouldn't. You know the words. Uh, he he needs to repent. That uh, he I don't even remember what the amount was now. I don't remember his name, do you? No, I don't remember his name. So I couldn't be packing any grudge. But I haven't <laughs> forgot it. See, it's there. I remember and what he looked like. I cannot remember his name, and I cannot remember the amount of money involved. But he did that to me, and see what it was. It was a learning experience. Mm -hmm. the, the bank man told me, he says, I told you you shouldn't do it. He said, I have. In fact, what he told me, he said, I've seen ministers get stung on that more than any other people. Says they'd be working with the congregation, and somebody will come up like that, and they'll go on a note for them. And he said, I'm more than any other group. He said, I've seen ministers get stung with that type of thing. Well, I remember you called the elder, and, the, and he said... He didn't help all his son at all, but he didn't offer to pay it. He said, I've learned my lesson, and I don't do it. He didn't do it. Yeah, I called his dad, yeah. and he said, well, it's just... I remember he was from Brunswick. I do remember He said, that's just tough. Time. You shouldn't have loaned it to him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, was it dad, it's dad that loaned him in the first place? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's his dad now. <laughs> and I found out something in that, too. Whenever a person who is a stranger is asking you for something... And that means, see, nobody has a world where they're a stranger to everybody. And he can't ask, he's somebody to be suspicious. You thinking about Nashville? Mark is too. I felt uh, so terrible. We came out and there's this guy begging for cab money to go to Antioch. Antioch. And I'm thinking, I feel like, you know, that here we're, we're the, you oh, know, I feel terrible. This poor old needy person, he's all bandaged up and he's got his crutches. And he says it was... I said, where is Antioch? And he said, 20 miles out. And I said, that cost a fortune to drive to a, a cab to go 20 miles there and 20 miles back. Well, tell him to take a bus. And he <laughs> says, he says, uh, he says, well, it'd be about $40. And he said, no, he could see, you know, I guess that we thought that was a lot. And so he, then he said, well, I've got 20 of it, didn't I? He said, I've got 20. And I said, well, why did this cop take you? Why did this cop here? The cop was coming up to take him. And he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> they won't do it. They won't do it. You know? Anyway, he followed me down the road. Hollering, hey, hey, sir. But Paul uh, kept talking to him. That's why. I'm, so he thought he had somebody in that. Eventually, Paul would give it to him. And I just he told says, him, hey, so what sir, I hey, asked sir, him. Please help me. You know, I, I says, would you terrible. give me a number that I can call? I said, if you're legitimate and everything, I says, give me a number of somebody that I can call. Well, well he couldn't give any number. Everybody's out of town, you know, that he knew. <laughs> and here he is. And then another thing I asked him, he had on a Marine Corps shirt with a corporal. Well, <laughs> see, it's illegal if you're not in the Corps to wear the shirt. Well, I thought, so he's trying to convey the image of a injured war veteran on crutches <laughs> and a Marine Corps shirt. So I thought, I'm going to find out if this is a lie and I'll know something, or he's in, because I, you know, I was in the Marine Corps, and I knew some questions I could ask him. And I said, so I said, I said, well, I was in the Marine Corps. I said, were you in the Marine Corps? No. Well, when he realized I was in the Marine Corps, he said, no. And I said, well, you know, it's illegal for you to wear that shirt if you if you were not in the Marine Corps. I said, it's absolutely illegal. I said, you can take the insignia off. You don't wear it, but you can't wear it with the ranking on there. You might have got it. But uh, that's what he was masculating as. The thing is. 
I mean, he had a convincing story. But the next day we come by and he's at the same place, got the same line. Yeah. I mean, he's really? more money to catch a cow. Yeah, you think that'd be more creative. So. <laughs> the last time I went there, it was the post office. It was like 90 degrees. And, uh, and, and this, this uh, raggedy guy out in the front said, can you, can you spare some money for a cup of coffee? And I thought, you really want a cup of coffee? It's this hot. I, I almost told him on the way out, you really need to improve your story a bit. <laughs> oh, well. Well, anybody else with any, uh, by the way, a few uh, verses on God's attitude towards sin and yet he loves. Uh, Jeremiah 7, verse 16 and 17, God told Jeremiah not to pray for the people because they refused to repent. They refused to repent, and so God told Jeremiah, don't pray for them. I'm not going to forgive them. In Jeremiah 11:14, same thing. God told Jeremiah, says, don't pray for this people. Remember, John speaks of a, a sin not unto death that you pray for somebody on, and then a sin unto death, not to pray. And the only thing I can think of that is in the same line of Jeremiah here, that a sin that is not unto death is a sin that somebody's willing to repent of. One that's unto death that he says don't pray for is when somebody is involved in sin and they absolutely refuse to repent of it. Also in Proverbs 28 and verse 9, uh, the statement there that God does not hear the prayer of those who do not respect his law. And then, of course, you've got the statement in 1 John 3, 22, that God hears us because we respect his law and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So that God definitely, and all the way through the scriptures, Old and New Testament, prayer is a privilege of somebody that's walking with God. And so you ask the question, Mark, how do you differentiate? You, you love this person, but he, but he refuses to repent. And so then how do we treat him different than the other person? Well, what God does, he says, his reign falls on the just and the unjust and his son and nature is there for everybody. But people who are not walking with God do not have the privilege of prayer and they don't have his providential care. That the providential care and the, and the uh, listening to prayer and answering and all is a privilege of people that are walking with God and, and are faithful to him. And so, and yet God loves them and wants them to repent. And so I think in the same way that you can love somebody and want them to repent, but until they repent, they do not have the same privileges in their relationship with you that somebody does that is, you know, that is not, has not done that. Any other comments from anyone? And then I believe that, by the way, that's a good passage, I believe, in Leviticus 19, where he states that, uh, don't bear a grudge against your brother, but rebuke him frankly. I really believe it's a mistake to silently put up with something when somebody's wrong in you. And I've been guilty of it. I'm not talking down to anybody. I know that uh, I've got a situation that, uh, again, that the hardest thing to do in any kind of managerial job is to rebuke people when they do wrong. And I've, every now and then I've got a teacher that that just infuriates me sometimes because the teacher, she'll leave the room and leave 25 or 30 kids just sitting in there unsupervised and she's up gabbing with somebody or, or you know, moving around in the building or doing something to just kill time and not be in that room. And 
my experience has been is when I talk to her, she breaks down and cries. So I have a tendency, you know, and she's, a, she's a, one of these, she's an actually a likable person as a person. It's just she's, uh, she's got physical problems and uh, whatever, and, and she's just not an energetic person that really works. And so I get irritated. Well, really, I know that what I need to do is every single time that she does that, I need to immediately get her. But when I don't, what happens to me when I don't say anything to her, and I'll let it, maybe it'll happen three or four times, and I haven't said anything to her, I wind up just uh, really disliking her. I mean, it just really irritates me. And I found that if I can just go ahead and say something to her, that then it actually makes it easier for me to like her. You know, I can go ahead then, because she'll, she'll generally go ahead and get her act to, together for a couple of days anyway, you know. <laughs> but it makes it easier for me to like her if I say something. But if I don't say something, and I've done this several times since I've been principal, that I'd, I'd allow something to go on its wrong. And with the attitude that, well, maybe that's just a bad day, maybe it won't happen again, and I don't say anything. But then I find if, it, if they do it over and over, I have a hard time uh, not disliking that person, you know, and I really don't, you know, that's not right. And so the be I really believe, even though it's hard to do, that when somebody wrongs you, the best thing to do is just to immediately, you know, or find a good way to go ahead and deal with that individual and so they can know and, and they can repent. On that scene of the death, um, you said don't pray for somebody that's committing a sin of the death. Well, for God to forgive them. Oh, okay. Don't pray for God. Oh, but it'd be okay to pray that that person sure. repent. Right. Okay. Yeah, in other words, you might pray that God's providence would be such that he would, God knows their heart and that, that, that the right things happen to make them rethink their situation or whatnot. But it's just that it's a waste of time to ask God to forgive them when he's already conditioned forgiveness upon repentance. And that's what Jeremiah is dealing with over there. And God, Jeremiah apparently was praying for those people and for God to forgive them and all. And it was like God was disturbed to Jeremiah, and he says, Jeremiah, quit praying for these people. I'm not going to. You know, and, it was, and at two different times, he told Jeremiah to stop praying for the, for the people. Okay. Um, let's uh, come on down to... Uh, oh, okay, the next part of there, in verse 5, let's see, uh, 5 through... Uh, Five and six. Would you read that, Mark? The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey, it will obey you. Okay. A couple of things, at least, you see now. What are, what are a few, few observations anybody can make? He said, Increase our faith. And then he said, If you have faith, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. So hyperbole again. <laughs> mm -hmm. has, okay. to, has to be, doesn't it? Okay. You look up here, and it said it's Unless this guy that causes sin. Yeah. <laughs> Better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck. Remember the other time the Lord said, if your hand calls you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, pluck them out. Hyperbole. Just simply stating how bad it is 
that it's better to do whatever's necessary to avoid that tempting situation. Same thing here. Uh, if you've got enough faith, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Uh, number one, what's the reason for doing that? Telling a mulberry tree uh, to be uprooted. Oh, by the way, I was reading something on this. It was uh, real interesting, too. And I can't remember whether this was from Lamsa or another comment on it, because I've been reading another Bible this, this week. It's Ryrie's um, study Bible that I read this, and I thought it was interesting. It said the um, mulberry tree has an absolutely tremendous root system, and it's known in that, and see, this is a dry part of the country, and the only type of plants really that can exist real good in dry parts, through long dry seasons, are, are, are trees that have a good root system. But it said the mulberry tree is, is noted for an extensive root system. So that made it uh, stand out even more. Sort of like the mustard seed. The mustard seed, uh, today we could come up with something smaller, but from their environment, the mustard seed was the smallest of anything they could have come up with. And so he's emphasized hyperbole. Faith as small as a mustard seed. Okay, be uprooted and planted in the sea. All right, we agree that that is a hyperbole. By the way, uh, some of the holiness groups uh, misuse that. They'll take that literal. And it's like, if you have enough faith, you can just ask anything. You can move a mountain, whatever, you know, and say it, 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 if you have enough faith. But that's not it. It's a hyperbole. But what do you see in that then? Uh, it, what is it saying? They ask the question, or they state to him, they say, increase our faith. He makes this statement. He's saying their faith is sufficient. The amount of faith they have. Well, did he ever rebuke them for their little faith? Yeah. Okay, he did. Um, remember when Peter tried to walk, he said, because of your... Uh, a little faith when he started out and then he began to doubt and then remember the first time they attempted to perform a miracle after he had given the authority to perform a miracle and they were unsuccessful in Matthew 17 and they said why couldn't we do this and he said because of your little faith uh, we can see that faith is something that is a degree thing right it can be increased and he's also saying there that even though that's a hyperbole you can do tremendous things if you have faith in God I mean that's the least that we can see saying you started to say that's something what I was going to say. Okay. so the least he's saying is that number one faith can be increased and what Mark's observation is even if they have a little it's a in comparison to what it could be, that it's a powerful tool. He may even be indicating that they're not using what little they've got to the fullest. I believe that when Paul tells them not to quench the spirit and things like that, that um, or not to neglect the spirit that was in them, that these spiritual gifts, as it was shown in uh, Matthew 17, when they couldn't heal for lack of faith, these spiritual gifts weren't just given to them, they were given to them with a condition of faith. And they, when, they, when they healed somebody, 
I believe they had to had to heal, believing at the time they told that person it's healed that they would be healed. And of course, that example is that that man's son who could not be healed because of their lack of faith. But the the gift itself was contingent upon their faith. Well, if that is true, is there anything that applies to us, some things, that the writers definitely tell us that our faith is an important part as to whether or not anything's going to happen? Prayer. Prayer. James said that when you, if you doubt, don't even expect you're going to be heard. You're like the double-minded man. 1 John 5, 14, 15 says, if you ask anything, this is the confidence that you can have, that if you ask anything in keeping with his will, and you know that he hears you, you have your petition. So if you have so much confidence in God that you know he's listening to you, and you're asking in keeping with his will, he said, it, you've got it. It's, that's, uh, it, if, it, if it's that way. So prayer is one that... Uh, uh, you know, they use in basketball a shot that somebody just throws from way out nowhere, and they call it a prayer. In reality, that that's not a prayer of the Bible. That um, you know, they'll say he threw up a prayer, as if that's what you do when you can't do anything else. According to the Scriptures, the only prayer that works is one that is prayed with confidence and trust in God. Other than there's no such thing as just throwing up something hoping. Because God isn't in tune to that, that uh, he is the, the line to God is, is trust, and that's what he responds to. Uh, okay, look at it again. Well, I'm having trouble understanding uh, his response in light of their statement. It doesn't seem to be answering their statement. They say increase our faith, and then he says something on the side that's very interesting, but it really doesn't seem to uh, well, respond to their statement. part of it may be in what Mark said, though, Steve, that, that he's telling them that even if they only have a little bit of faith in God, they can do great things. That may, in other words, see, they, they actually had faith, right? But they were wanting it increased, and well, they, it could be that... For it to be increased in light of what he just said about re forgiving somebody if they come to you seven times to repent, forgive them seven times. And, they, and are they saying he's asking a lot of them to, to be able to forgive them that many times? Is that what they're asking him to do? I don't know. The reason it's hard to tell is because the way the Gospels are written, a lot of times it's difficult to tell if this was, you know, it's like it'll pop. It's written sometimes like Proverbs of the teachings of Christ. Mm -hmm. And they're not always, you know, directly connected. Uh, so I, I really don't know on that. Uh, I think a, poss a possible part of it is what you said there, that, uh, that they already had some faith. And he said that even a little faith is very powerful before God. In other words, they could. But yet uh, it is, we know that according to both the Lord and the apostles, faith is something that could be increased, right? Because he condemned, he criticized them for having little faith on several occasions, and then they want their faith increased. Uh, it's one of those things. Also, it gets back to you know half the communication sometimes is, is in the way things are said, huh. and it would be interesting to know how they said increase our faith. Yeah. Uh, maybe they were in the way they said it. They were sort of saying you know we've already got we we 
we, we're sort of in a way of we have faith and, and we we have a lot of faith and we want him more and he's kind of he's Could kind of putting deal. them in their place and saying, Look, if you had just a little faith. Yeah. If you had just a little faith, you know. Right. It could be a rebuke, Steve, because like you're saying, uh, he rebuked Peter and he rebuked the apostles. And it was like that, remember he would say another time, how long shall I be with this generation? And in other words, that it was like they would see miracle after miracle after miracle, and still their faith wasn't what he expected. And he found that very, it was like that he stood amazed that they could see all those miracles and, and not be overwhelmed. And then remember when he, another time when he became aggravated at the Pharisees and all, that they had seen several miracles, and then they wanted another miracle. And so he said, a sinful, adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but there's only going to be one sign given you, and that's the sign of Jonah. And he made it clear that you got one big one coming in the resurrection, and if you don't respond to that, you just don't respond. And, and that's it. But it, again, it's the, what the tone that comes across is he's a little aggravated that they haven't responded. And, and then again, he says, you observe the skies, again, a miracle context. You observe the uh, skies, and you can tell when it's going to rain, and yet you cannot discern the signs of the time. You, you, you're intelligent enough, but you can't look and discern what's happening right before your eyes. So you're right, it could be a little bit of a rebuke there. Uh, from our standpoint, Faith is a degree thing then, and you, it, you can increase it. Any ideas, how do you build faith? Uh, the kind where you have that kind of confidence in God. What are some things, I mean, uh, that, that a person could do in order to increase their faith? It seems to me if you pray for something to come to pass, come to pass and then it did, that that would give you more confidence about that. Okay, so if you start off with a little, it likes to him that uh, uh, parable of the talent concept that you get more as a result of making the best. To him that has will be given even more. So if you use what you have and reap results, the end result is more. And so you're saying that just like if you honestly pray and you're fervent and you're believing that this is in keeping with God's will and all, and then it happens, the end result is a strengthening of your faith. Okay, so success... That's a verbal, I mean, you, you could separate that really into two categories. There's the verbalizing uh, your faith in prayer, and, and when, when you see that answered, um, that builds more faith. So the next time you ask for something in prayer, um, your faith is increased, and you may, you may go, you may ask more. Um, then there's the action part, where you do something, totally in faith maybe, you know, it's a small step maybe initially, but you do it in faith, and uh, and God sees you through it, and, and next time, because you took that small step, you're ready to take a bigger step, but the key is taking those steps, you know. Okay. That's, isn't that the way our, one of the ways that our faith grows in things right here in this life? You uh, do something, you're successful with it, and then you have confidence and you go a step higher and a step uh, further. I'd say that these people that walk a tightrope in the circus do not start out by doing that, but they do a little bit more and then they extend the distance each time. And then they reach the point where they have the confidence to cross that entire thing. 
I'd say with, if they tried it the first time with it that distance, they wouldn't have the faith or the confidence to do it. It's what they keep doing it and keep adding a little to it. And so it seems to me then if a person in starting out, if he will not exercise what faith he's got, uh, he's not going anywhere with it. it. It would exercise it in the first place. Or what are some other things uh, on faith? Uh, you, you, you have this thing of trusting God and then reaping the benefit and all of it. What are some other things that actually uh, increase your faith? Well, I think there's a parallel in uh, personal relationships. My, uh, my confidence or my trust in another person is based, like we said, on experience with them, and it's also based on knowing them and knowing their personality and their characteristics, how reliable are they. And uh, uh, just uh, knowledge of them. And, and so I think there's a parallel there with God that uh, to the extent that we, we know God better, we know, we, know, uh, we know examples where he's been true to his, his word in the past and things, then we can, we can build our trust in Okay, what happened? That's good. On that, what happened in think of Ecclesiastes, and you got Solomon going through all these things. And it's all vanity. It's all vanity, and etc. Then he winds up and saying, "The whole of man is to fear God and keep His commandments." This is a conclusion that I've come to. What has actually caused Solomon to go from from belief into unbelief and back to belief again? consequences of his actions and experience of God. Okay. He starts off believing in God and then he challenges God. And he actually does his own thing for a period of time. He tries to seek happiness in every imaginable way. He reaps consequences. He observes life. And finally he looks and says that the law is perfect. And that the best that man can do is, is walk in, in God's law. So it seems, again, if you're aware of God's law, the older you get, as you observe life and you experience life, you have more and more and more confidence that this law is absolutely perfect. When David said the law of the Lord is perfect, he said that as a man that was guilty of adultery and murder. And, and he, he was reflecting on the law and what had happened and all. And his conclusion was that God's law is perfect, so he had even more confidence. And remember when he prayed to God after that sin, he said, if you'll forgive me and allow me to live, I will teach transgressors your way. That uh, more and more confidence as a result of it. All right, another passage, Psalms 19. The heavens are declaring the glory of God and affirming his handiwork day unto day, their voice going out to the end of the world. Uh, you have the psalmist there reflecting on the creation. Another time he said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalms 139, verse 14. So reflection on the creation of God, whether it's the cosmos or on life, uh, can build faith and confidence in God. Uh, I was reading something the other day, just a review. Herbie had this book on John Clayton that I hadn't seen before. It, it, with uh, starting out, and it was, I was going to read it out of curiosity because I've been looking for something on about a high school level that I could hand out, because most of John's stuff is a little bit higher level than that. 
So anyway, I read, and it served as a good review, and I really enjoyed it. And I just thought from the standpoint of building your faith, idiot, when you sit down and think, like his whole first chapter is dealing with the mathematical impossibility of life happening by chance, or the cosmos happening by chance. And he, he gives a good illustration, like if you're trying to guess what is in somebody's hand, you know that they've got this little uh, whatever it may be, you know, it may be a quarter. So it's in one of the two hands. Well, then if you find out it's not in this one, then it has to be in this one. So he said, anytime you're in a situation where there's two concepts and one or the other has to be true, if you prove one of them is false, then the other one has to be true. And, so he, and then he goes to the point that there's only two alternatives, either God created or we've got eternal matter and random chance producing life. So there's no other alternative. And says every, every intellectual that's ever lived, believer or non-believer, will acknowledge that that's the only two alternatives. There's no other alternative. So then his point is, if you can prove that random chance is an impossibility, that in the same, but in the same way you prove the truthfulness of the other. Well, then he goes through the various mathematical odds, and when he gets to something even like the individual sale, he quotes an atheist evolutionist who actually, in talking about the phenomenon that's involved to bring about one sale, makes the observation says that I know this is an impossibility, but the interesting thing is that it happened. And he said, that how can a man say this, that I know it's an impossibility, but yet it happened. And he said, he really isn't coming to believe evolution by way of evidence. He has the predisposed attitude that God doesn't exist. So therefore, evolution has to be true. So then when he reads all of this about the impossibility mathematically of this happening, he agrees with it and says, I know it's mathematically impossible. Isn't it amazing that it happened? because the only alternative is believing in God. And so he quotes him on that. Well, I was thinking as I was reading that, as a refresher course, and going all through just the sale was fantastic, that, uh, and then I, I learned some things on the, the earth, you know, that I either missed before or some new information. But I don't know how anybody can be aware of all of that. I mean, you can just take it for granted and not have their faith increased that a lot of our young people that are brought up and they believe in all, that it's one thing just to look at the earth, but to take the time to sit down and really become aware from the statements of atheist scientists at, at how complex and how complicated this whole thing is and, and reach the point where it's, it's an absolute mathematical impossibility in so many directions that you would go. That's actually a faith-building experience, and I think Paul alludes to that in Romans 1.20 when he said it's man is without excuse, you know, not believing in God. All right, then another thing in Romans 10.13 through 17 where he makes a statement that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And I believe that as you meditate on the Word, the prophecies and their fulfillment, the life of Christ, and all the unique features, the what Paul is doing with the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 is causing them to go back and rethink that. In other words, he's saying, here's the evidence. Don't let anybody deceive you uh, about this thing, that this is not just some wild faith that we have, that all of that type of thing tends to, all the various things we mentioned and maybe more that somebody could come up with, tends to increase faith. But suffice it to say, faith can be increased 
And I believe that when we develop lessons for our young people coming up and when we teach the Bible, that it ought not to be taken for granted that, that all the things that we know that build and strengthen and increase faith ought to be used in, in helping to develop their minds. To me, one the the thing that increases my faith more than anything else is just trusting God and then seeing that it works out or that it is the best thing, no. doing, doing what you feel that God would have you to do, and then it turns out to be the best thing. Or even sometimes when you don't and you reflect on it and it, it you know, you, you did it your way and it didn't work. No. To me, that increases. It's sort of like um, Carl was saying in his lesson the other night, we need to know our own story and tell it, yeah. testify. Well, I think you know. on all of that, and then when I think of the resurrection, just like when I was talking about the creation, I don't even know how many books I've read on the evidences dealing for the, with the resurrection. Because even though they may deal with the same ones, I like to get all the different approaches. And I don't think I've ever read any deep or shadow, but that I benefited. I mean, the, the evidence... We can live in this world that is so secular, and it's very easy to just kind of let it get cold. I mean, that, that evidence is fantastic. I mean, literally, when most of the pagan world is not aware of it, and that's sad. But to go back and contemplate the evidence that your faith stands in, in the resurrection of Christ, is absolutely outstanding that, that most of what people believe in history and most of what they believe that's going on today does things that they believe without any doubt in their mind does not have the quality of evidence behind it that we have for that event. And so I think just any refreshing of the mind on that, Steve? Dad, I think we left out a big thing. Um, the, uh, the, the, uh, there, was a little, there was a subtle difference between what I was talking about before, knowing God and, and the kind of things you're talking about, and I think there's both, and the passage in Romans refers to both when it, when, when you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, uh, learning from Scripture uh, about God. Um, and part of it is, is, is intellectually knowing that God exists uh, and that his, uh, his law is perfect and that there's benefits uh, from, from following consequences that you can see from not following it. Um, and, the, and the other part, though, of this knowing God and the part that I was specifically referring to is, is a personal relationship with God. Knowing him in a, in a personal sense, not intellectually, but knowing him, and it, it, there's a bunch of passages in the Bible that it's at, it it asks us to seek seek my face, um, seek the face of God, which was a which was a way of saying, um, you know, seek to know me, and uh, uh, and I think the 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 key the key in this this other element in knowing God, and, it, and it's like a another person. I can know I can know mom and I can know she exists and I can know that that uh, that uh, from my previous experience that everything she asks maybe is for my benefit or not but the the critical other component is to know she loves me. Uh, that I have to know her and to know she loves me and then I can really put my trust in her. To really, tr to really throw your trust into somebody else, another individual, you have I think a really important part, you really have to believe they love you. Yeah, and, and so I think that's part of it with God also. We really have to understand the extent uh, that God loves us before we can put our trust in Him completely. Yeah. I think a good, a good example of what you're saying, Steve, would be that too, that 
when Jesus was trying to teach them to pray to God, and he said that no father, if his son asked him for something to eat, would give him a snake. And he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father. And he was conveying there that God loves you even more than you love your own children. And therefore, you shouldn't be hesitant about going to God for your needs. But yeah, I think that's, you can actually intellectually know somebody, but the very knowledge of them might cause you to not want to put their trust in them. And it's the fact that, that God, and, and maybe also a, a bearing on this, God has sometimes been portrayed, especially in the legalistic community, as this stern person up there that's waiting to zap you when you mess up, as opposed to a loving Heavenly Father uh, that is very tolerant and very patient and very understanding and always willing to forgive even when we, met, when we mess up. That's why I think, I really think that we've got something to learn about. Uh, call it testifying or whatever, but just talking about what, what the Lord has done for you in your life. I think that it's, you know, it, it's, it's good to do that, and, and it it's increases your faith in those that, that hear you. I really do. It's kind of, I thought of Tammy the week before. Carl brought his lesson that night, know your own story and tell it. We were just sitting in the the den talking, and, and I was telling her how when you and I first got married, how you got more and more involved in the church, and you decided to, to go to Lipscomb and major in Bible, and, and we took what we'd saved for a house and went there, and, and our money went real low, and, and when it did, they just passed the GI Bill, and we were able to to keep going and, and then moved and we got into the low income housing on and on and on. She says, Mama, that's that's wonderful that you're telling that and we talked about the fact that you ought to do that more. She was saying you ought to do that more, you know, and basically we were saying, you know, it's a, a testimony and people just don't do that, you know. And, and I our just fellowship. There is a place yeah, that's for what Pam, talking. Pam uh, Parker, the girl that I told you, yeah. I talked to her the other day. And, well, I think you might have been standing there, and I mentioned uh-huh. something that she she taught me to testify, and she said, shh, there's church class people around here. <laughs> but it's, uh, it is true that, uh, that on that kind of thing, the, I was thinking that, that uh, I was in a situation the other day, and this was it. Uh, I was talking to an, an adult over at school, and just out of the blue, they was talking about children. But they was very complimentary. She said, "You know, you and Barbara just done a wonderful job with your children. You know, you got a fantastic family, etc. You know." And so I just told the person, I says, uh, "It was nothing fantastic about me and Barbara." I said that my my biological father is a moral reprobate, as he's been married at least five times that I know of and that is an absolute reprobate. And I said that, uh, that uh, this is, I don't know that I said, Barbara, that uh, the accuracy of the scriptures, we literally made an effort, however imperfect, to bring the children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I said, the experience has convinced me that if parents will make that effort in every way possible, that there may be that exceptional black sheep, but I, I think that, that if that's the right word, I, I think that, you know, it, it's just evidence to me that what it says is accurate in that sense. And when I see <coughs> situations where that happens, you know, just like uh, when I'm around uh, uh, Sandy's husband's family, Carl, you know, that uh, every one of them are just real strong, devout Christians, everything like that. 
I don't believe that that is an accident when it, when, it, when it can happen that way. And I think also, I believe, and I'd like the opportunity to deal with this. You know, I don't know about Barbara and I, we'd have to talk on it, but I would like to take in a couple of kids that come from a bad environment and bring them up in that way. I really believe that you can change a person's entire personality, you know, with those principles and everything like that. And I, I think I, that any number of things like that, that if you, uh, the passage in John 7, 17 said, if anybody willeth to do his will, then he shall know of the doctrine, whether I speak of myself or of God. Well, Jesus literally in that context was challenging the people to test him on what he said and said, if you'll do it, then you'll know whether it's coming from me or, or from God. And I think that's true of God's law. And I believe what we were talking about there, I think in your own personal life too, that when you strive in that direction, however imperfect it might be, and you look at what takes place, that it increases the confidence you know you have in it. And I think the same thing with a couple that's married, you know, that to the degree that they do that, that they will become more and more confident that it is right. I think it's like you said, I think you and I had all kinds of imperfections and all, but I do think one of the most important concepts to teach kids is that God's way is right and he gives it to you as a loving Heavenly Father that loves you and wants the best for you. And to the degree that you do that, you're going to benefit, and to the degree you don't, you, there's going to be consequences. And I think that if you can make children understand that and convey that to them, I, you know, rather than just you're going to do it because it says do it, you know, I think if you can just convey to them God is a loving Heavenly Father who wants the best for you, I think that's the most important. But you know, the church as a whole, I like when we're talking about this thing of testimony, we put ourselves down because we are imperfect and we're looking at a perfect standard. But just like you over there, we're a very small group, but you just think of the group over there in contrast with the world. See, we look at ourselves in, in contrast to the Lord, you know. But you look over there, who in that building would you be scared to live next door and not lock your door? Anybody over there? I'd lay money around any adult over there in that building. I wouldn't bother to lock my door. And you wouldn't have any fear any one of them would be, you know, helpful in a difficult situation. Well, I'm saying that is not typical for the, the world out there. And this, I'm sure it's the same, you know, where at the church, you know, where you're at. You've got a bigger group, so you might have some people in that still have some rough edges and everything like that. But I'm saying that when you look at whatever, when you look at what you call imperfections in your church, it's because you're contrasting it to what, it ought to, what you want, to the perfect state. But if you look at your church and contrast it to the world out there that's on drugs and alcohol and, and, and divorcing and remarrying at will and things like that, that group of people looks pretty good. You know, that, uh, I think that, uh, and that's true, I think, all over. I just thought when I was at Jubilee, over 10,000 people there. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be great to live in a world or a city of 10,000 people like that? You know, there'd be wrong things happen. But just being around so many people that have that much love for God, and then it's reflected in so many ways. But uh, I think all of that thing is involved in the process of putting it into practice and, and watching what happens. 
you know, talking about bringing kids. I don't know whether you was talking about from scratch or when they get older, but I think if you wait until they get older, even six years old, I think the task is... Oh, it's is the older, the harder. Yeah. The older, the harder, but they can... Uh, but, you I know. recently had somebody say to me, talking about their child that was a teenager, that, you know, they just stand up and talk back to him and tell him, well, you know, I'll leave home and, and all this, and, well, I don't want them to leave home. You know, I'd rather them be home than out on the street. And, I, and you just, and it's so sad, but, you know, what do you do? You know, well, you can't whip this big, tall, you know, teenager that's 16 or something, and you just want to say, you know, I mean, it's sad, and there is hope, and you do, but that you messed up way back there before they were six. You know, it starts way back, and... Well, they'll just stand up for their integrity, even when the child says that. I know, but I'm saying it's so much harder. Yeah. It's just so much harder. At least my experience in looking at what's going on. I'd say that many a young person has pulled that over somebody's thing that, you know, if you don't let me do what I want to, then I'll go. You know, and it shouldn't give in. Anybody else with any comments on the concepts we looked at tonight. I thought we'd get the whole chapter done, and we, we didn't. We, uh, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? Isn't it? How much that he says and in so many of you in his statements. I mean, when you think of the commentaries, it's been written just on the, the words of Christ. You know. Anybody with anything you'd like to say? 